Welcome to Back from the Abyss, where we bring you stories of hope and healing, recovery and redemption. I'm Dr. Craig Heacock, your host and resident psychiatrist. Names and some details have been changed in these stories to maintain confidentiality. About a third of my patients struggle with addiction, and while sobriety is often the goal, it isn't always the goal. For many people, the goal is harm reduction or moving away from more dangerous and destructive patterns of use to less toxic and life-wrecking substance use. Our guest today, Larry, progressed from heavy drinking and marijuana use during adolescence to smoking methamphetamine and then finally injecting both meth and heroin and whatever else he could get his hands on. Larry grew up with a mentally ill mother who was supposedly homeschooling the kids, but in fact much of the time was frantically writing religious tomes during her weeks and months of mania. Larry was an extremely talented dancer and as an adolescent was invited to join a world tour. Spending late nights with the dance company, he was introduced to alcohol, and soon he was drinking to blackout, and eventually kicked off the tour and sent home. Shortly thereafter, Larry's older brother began cooking methamphetamine and testing quality of the batches with Larry as his guinea pig. Meth soon took over Larry's life, and by his early 20s, Larry's hour-to-hour, minute-to-minute existence was utterly dominated by his addictions. How long were you doing daily intravenous use? Every morning and then like every afternoon I would do it. But then it was even worse because when I would come down, I would get uh, so restless and all this. So in order to get rid of the come down from that, I would do shoot up opiates to come down at nighttime mm-hmm. so I could sleep. So I was doing meth all day and then I would do opiates at night. <laughs> yeah. It's horrible. That's a common thing because oh, yeah. you have this incredibly stimulating chemical yeah. and you need to sleep. Yeah. So that what your solution, like a lot of people's, was meth during the day, opioids at night. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So. Um, and how long did that go on? Uh, almost eight years. No, no, but this, oh. like the IV, you know, Ooh. inject yourself twice a day with meth and then that, flatten yourself at night with opioids. I think that that only happened for less than a year. Mm-hmm. I'm pretty sure when I was really, really bad on it. Yeah. Can you? I'm imagining that those days are pretty fuzzy, but I'm wondering if you have any memories or anecdotes you might share from that last few months, you know, when you were just waking up, you know, injecting yourself to get going. Um, you were working then. Yep. Yeah. So I was you, still working. Yeah. yeah. Well, I'd be shooting up in the bathroom on my breaks and stuff too. So yeah, it was horrible. But yeah, I got to the point where, you know, I had neomoxid all over my body. I got an abscess on my arm. Uh, they thought they're going to have to amputate it. And then the one time when I did go to the ER for the abscess, they gave me antibiotics and stuff and all that. Then I got home and I did the exact same thing to my other arm. <laughs> mm. It was ridiculous. Mm. So, but um, yeah, but, I got, yeah, go ahead. But, but it didn't change. I no. mean, you were so deeply in it that here you are getting horrific infections and almost dying and ending up in the hospital. And as soon as you're out, back at it yep right back mm-hmm. so um but yeah i got to the point where i knew that i was gonna die and i called my dad and i was like you gotta move to washington he's like wow i was like because i'm gonna die he's like what do you mean you're gonna die and i was like i'm literally going to die if you don't get me out of here dad mm-hmm. and he's like seriously i'm like yeah seriously mm-hmm. so finally he f- flew me out yeah how did you know you were gonna die because again it sounds like it was a horrific 
multi-year path, you know, ending in some pretty scary hospitalizations. But do you remember what was it that made you think, okay, now's the time. Like if I don't bail out of this now, if I don't call my dad and I'm going to die. So I can, I can, after there's this one experience. So I, um, it was at nighttime. I'd been up for a long time and all of a sudden, like I hear somebody banging on the door and there's cops saying, we know you're in there. We know and they start banging on the door and then they had flashlights looking through my window and everything. And I started going crazy and I was like, Oh my God, they're going to get me. And then I went into my room and I was like, okay, whatever. I'm going to take my clothespin so I can pass out. Cause I didn't take my clothespin and I'm so weak. And, um, all that was hallucination. Nobody knocked on my door. There was no flashlights outside through my window. Nothing. That was all hallucination. I think I, I even went to my closet to call my psychiatrist. And I was telling my psychiatrist, I was like, there's the cops at my door. There's, uh, you know, flashlights through the window. Uh, they all know that I have drugs in here. And I don't know what to do. Please help me. And I hung it up. And the next day, my, doc, my psychiatrist calls me back. And he's like, I couldn't really hear what was going on. There was a lot of static, and uh, I couldn't hear what you were really saying, so give me a call back. And then the next day, I took my clozapine and passed out for a while, but, oh, man, it was nuts. So, Did you have a lot of times like that where you... That was probably the worst, yeah. where I was actually completely hallucinating yeah. off of it. So yeah. You could not tell... Yeah, your reality was, and even I think in a couple of days before that, I got to the point where like I think I popped like 10, 20 milligram Adderall, and I passed out, went to bed. That's how high my tolerance was because I at one point I ran out of meth, so my friend gave me Adderall, so I would take all these extended release Adderalls, and yeah, so that's when I knew I was gonna die. Yeah, <laughs> and you're still working during all this. Yeah. Still working. That's still... amazing. Oh, yeah. Tell me about that. How, how do you maintain a life where you're doing IV opioids and heroin and working? It was it was crazy. I uh, people I think some people had, you know, knew I was doing it, but other people didn't. Um, so, yeah, sometimes I would, you know, you know, in the bathroom shooting up or whatever and not even on my break, just in the bathroom, you know, randomly. And they would be like, yo, hey, Larry, uh, customer service. And I'm like, ah, and I'm in the bathroom. There's blood everywhere. And then like, I put my my uh, long sleeve shirt down and all the blood was soaking it up. But it was in a, it was on a black one. So you couldn't really see it. It just looked like it was kind of moist and wet. So I come up there. And I'm like, hi, how can I help you today? Did anyone, coworkers or supervisors or? They didn't know. I could, no one knew. Well, the thing was, is that was I, since I was so unstable, all anything I told them was, "Hey, I'm schizophrenic, bipolar. You know, do you want know kind of drugs that I gotta take? You know, yeah. like." <laughs> Even though my understanding, your diagnosis along with addiction was bipolar, not schizophrenic. But I think you, I, well, wasn't at one point schizophrenic? Or is that different? I can't remember. That's similar. Similar, but, but it's yeah. it's. Uh, Sounds like you were using almost your psychiatric diagnosis as a shield. Exactly. Like, hey, I'm bipolar. Leave me alone. Exactly. When really what you're describing is while you may well have had bipolar symptoms, then the huge issue was you were dying of addiction. Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. In 12-step groups like AA and NA, they talk about how working the steps with a sponsor can catalyze a spiritual awakening and thus remove the cravings for drugs and alcohol forever. I've worked with many patients who have had this experience, 
and are no longer haunted by drug obsessions and fears of relapse. However, many others, despite rehab, 12-step groups, intensive therapy, full-time work, healthier relationships, they never seem to be able to leave that chemical lover behind. They know that they are always just one impulsive decision away from total disaster. Larry had years of staying clean from opioids, but that all came crashing down with a new girlfriend and her secret life. Are you, are you worried that you'll relapse to meth? Uh, uh, no, because I'm not around it. But mm. if somebody offered it to me, I wouldn't be able to say no. Mm. I know myself. Mm. You know, even after being <laughs> through all this, I still would say yes if they offered it to me. I'm mm. not gonna lie. I mean, yeah, that's how that's how it happened with my my recent relapse. Because mm. you had a recent relapse with opioids. Yes. Yeah. And um. And you'd had years. Clean. Years clean. Yeah. yeah. And so, how did that go down? Well, um, I first met this girl. I hadn't been with a girl in a long time, and um. Um, she used to come to Albertsons and buy scratch tickets and stuff. And I asked her out one day and then we had real good chemistry and everything. And then she never told me she was doing them. I think she was doing them behind my back or she said that she had a prescription for them, which was a lie. But, um, yeah, she would smoke them on a piece of foil and then she'd do it right in front of me. And I was like, you know, I can't believe you do that. And she's like, well, you want to try some? I'm there you go. So you, you had years, years clean from opioids. And then somebody put it right in front of me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So. Do, you, do you have a sense that it's going to be like that forever? Hopefully not. I want to think that, but maybe it won't. <laughs> yeah. It's just, I mean, yeah, I do, I do want to think that I wouldn't do it if somebody gave it to me, but I... I yeah. But even with everything that you have now, and um, we're going to hear more about that in a few minutes, but... With all the changes you've made in your life and the hard-won health that you've had, that if yeah, methamphetamine were placed in front of you, especially in a surprise way like that, would yeah. probably just suck you right back in. Yeah, I'd probably die because I know if I did relapse, well, if I relapse with needles again, yeah, I don't think I have another relapse. Mm-hmm. So I think that if I did relapse, I would die. Pretty mm-hmm. much, I'm pretty sure I would die. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so. Larry moved to Washington State and, with the help of his father, tried to start a new, clean, and sober life. After a short period of total sobriety, he began to deeply crave meth again, while also fully recognizing that going back to meth would mean his certain death. I got rid of my phone, got rid of my cell phone, threw it away in the garbage, so I didn't Mm -hmm. want to know anybody's numbers. Mm -hmm. I have some memorized, but I still threw away the phone, and I, uh took some time off of work just to collect myself. So for a few months there, um, all I did really was exercise. I was 100% sober. Um, but I got to the point where I had that need to get high again. So at this point, you know, I, I know I can't do methamphetamine or anything. So, I mean, the only thing that I can do that's not going to kill me is marijuana. Because mm-hmm. I know that, you know, if I do meth, my life is over. But, you know... I mean, there's meth. You don't eat, you don't sleep. You know, weed is you eat, you sleep. <laughs> yeah. You know, so. So you tried to do a few months totally clean and sober. I did. Exercising and just trying to take care of yourself. Definitely. And... Well, then I started, no, I started drinking though because I thought that I uh, wouldn't use weed because I didn't want to get high anymore. Mm. But I was kind of lying to myself because I'm like, here I am drinking a beer, but it's not as bad as weed. Mm. That's how my mom would say, but she doesn't know anything. But just that there were mentality. Yeah. Um. So to, to summarize this process of getting off of 
IV heroin and meth is that you reached out for help. You went out of state. You basically, it sounds like you used marijuana as your bridge, kind of safety bridge to stay away from other harder drugs. Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, that's the only thing that would get rid of the urge to shoot up. Mm-hmm. I mean, I mean, because, uh, ugh, yeah, it's pretty horrible. But, um, yeah, it's the only thing that would help my anxiety, you know, to get me high, but I'm not going to die from it. So mm-hmm. that actually worked really well for me in, uh, in how I got clean. It's like a harm reduction approach. I don't know if you know that term, meaning you try to choose the least harmful option. And I know a lot of people in recovery or 12-step programs would disparage ongoing marijuana use saying, oh, you're not really clean and sober. But what I hear you saying is you tried that and, well, you went right back to alcohol and were... Yeah, Yeah, because I didn't have anything. Because I, I didn't want to smoke weed, but then I got to the point where I was like, okay, I'll just see how it feels. And then after that, it kind of got... It went from there. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's yeah. nothing It's nothing like meth. So, I mean, but it's, it still gives me that high that mm-hmm. I still want to have. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, yeah. What would you say? I mean, it sounds like you have a complex relationship with marijuana. What are the positive things it does for you? And maybe what are some of the negative things that uh, are not po- so great? Positive things is, I mean, it, it almost for me it gets rid of the... Uh, urge to shoot up um and it really helps my anxiety i mean really helps my anxiety so um but the only thing about it is that it, i have horrible memory loss from it so i mean i got to the point where i couldn't even remember what people were saying to me five seconds when they told me you know mm-hmm. so uh i had to cut back on it but i got to the point where now now i don't do it that much so my memory's not as bad as it was, but it's still the memory thing is still a big thing. Mm-hmm. So, do you feel like that's still a hour to hour, day to day struggle to try to figure out? Okay, what's an amount of weed you can use and get the relief you need without getting the cognitive memory problems? Well, um, lately, I mean, I, I first of all, I don't really do flour. I kind of just stick to the oil. Um, because like first of THC all, THC oil, THC oil, oh. yeah. So like cannabis mm-hmm. oil, um, it's it's a lot stronger, but it uh, it doesn't smell, you know. So if I you know do it in the car or next to my girlfriend, she's not gonna smell it. Mm-hmm. Versus you know if I were to you know smoke regular weed or something, it would stink really bad. But um, no, yeah, the oil I take like one hit of oil and it keeps me high for at least six hours. Mm-hmm. So I mean I do that once or twice a day. There you go. And yeah. I function. I still go to work. You know, I drive. I teach dancing lessons. Mm-hmm. Do so. you have sort of a self-checking mechanism with your memory, or where you know if this happens or this happens, then you're using too much? You're exactly, yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, if I take one to two hits a day, it's not a problem. But any more than that, and then my my memory is horrible from it. So mm-hmm. it does really affect my memory. But um, it's better than the alternative. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so the people who love you, your family, your fiance, they're on board with this this sobriety strategy, if you will, of oh yeah, of using just enough to stay high and and dial down the urge to inject yourself exactly yeah 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 
One of my most vivid memories from psychiatry residency was being pulled aside by my attending and the exciting news he had to share. I think an amazing thing is happening right now in addiction work, he said. There's this new medication. It just came on the market. It's called Suboxone. I think it's going to be a total game changer. He went on to explain that while many alcoholics could leave detox after five or seven days and feel great, at least until they started drinking again, opioid addicts typically needed many months to start to feel somewhat normal and human again. Now I think we can give these people a chance, he said. Before, we really had no way to help them. Suboxone is the brand name for buprenorphine, a medication which partially and safely activates the opioid receptor, eliminating withdrawal symptoms, alleviating any lingering pain, and squashing physiological cravings. Now, 18 years after my excited attending shared that news and his hopes for Suboxone, I continue to be deeply grateful for this tool, one which has saved countless lives, including many patients in my current practice. What has Suboxone done for you? Gotcha. Okay. Um, yeah, it gets rid of it gets rid of the withdrawals, so you can function. And I mean, if I do, if I miss my dose of Suboxone, I hardly have en- energy throughout the day. It really helps with that. Um, just mainly the withdrawal, because the, the the withdrawal is horrible. It's the most horrible thing you can go through. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, the Suboxone kind of takes that away, and then. It's really helpful for me as well, you know, because if somebody were to offer me opiates, it would be different because I'm on Suboxone. So if they were like, here, you want some opiates? I'd be like, there's no reason I'm not going to get high. Mm-hmm. Why would I do that? <laughs> yeah. So have I you, can, yeah. Have you ever tested that to see, because I know, I'm sure your doctor probably told you that you know, if you're on Suboxone, buprenorphine, you can't get high. Yeah. Did you ever test that? No. Well, there was one point where I was on opiates and I was like, Huh, I'll just take my Suboxone now so that way I won't go through withdrawal later. And then I took it and it sent me straight into withdrawal. Mm. But, um, no, but yeah, but the Suboxone's really helped me. I mean, if it wasn't for the Suboxone, uh, I wouldn't have moved it out of that relationship that I was in. I would probably still be there, you know, because I wouldn't be on, I would still be sick from it. And I would probably still be with the same person who was, you know, in her 40s. She was having sex with guys for money. And I mean, if it wasn't for the Suboxone, I I don't know what would have happened. Yeah. Now some people are are some people disparage Suboxone, saying if you take that, you're not really clean and sober. You're not really in recovery. That's cheating. Um, what What would you say to those people? I I would just say they're very naive, <laughs> very ignorant. I mean. There is a lot of people who, you know, don't like taking meds or whatever. But I mean, if you're addicted to opiates, I can't, I can't see any other way out of it, <laughs> mm-hmm. pretty much besides the box. I mean, that gives you a way out big time. Yeah. So, How, so tell me where you are today, uh, Larry. Where are you with your life, your treatment? Things are good. Um, I mean, I got to the point where. When I was so screwed up on meth war, I thought, you know, like, I never was going to have a life. Like, this was it. I was going to be injecting chemicals into my veins for the rest of my life. I never wanted a girlfriend, you know, because I would rather get high. Honestly, people would be like, would you rather have sex or I'll get high? At that point, I was like, I would rather get high. I would rather get high and not deal with any girlfriend or anything because I just wanted to get high. <laughs> Off of meth, basically. Meth was your lover. Oh, yes. Definitely. So, yeah, it was, it was nuts. 
Is Larry a success story? On one hand, he's both physically and psychologically dependent on marijuana. He takes an opioid medication daily, and he has significant memory and cognitive problems from his marijuana dependence. On the other hand, he no longer uses needles. He has a full-time job, a fiancé, a car, and a clean apartment. He teaches Irish dancing and runs daily. Moreover, he has healed most of the frayed relationships with his family members. By all rights, he should be dead. This cat has used up at least nine lives. I see Larry's journey as so profoundly human, a kind of hero's journey with a cloud of pot smoke hovering above it. It's not perfect, it's messy, but it's human life on this third planet from the sun. If you like this episode, please share it with anyone else who might find hope or meaning in this story. Check out our website, bftapodcast.com, where you can learn more about us and this project, get more information on the treatments mentioned in the stories, as well as additional resources and music credits. You can also email us with comments or story requests. If you have time, please rate us on iTunes, as this helps us spread these stories far and wide. Much gratitude to my good friend Chris Johnson, who does our sound, and thank you for listening to Back from the Abyss. May each of you find the strength and support to find your way through the darkness.